Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalio. Last week, we shared with you the first part of what was, for us, a three-hour conversation with Cindy Martin. We really didn't introduce Cindy last week. We just jumped right in, which is often the best way to do things. So this week, for those of you who aren't familiar with Cindy, let me just share a little bit of her resume. Cindy is one of my Click the Teaches coaches. She's also a Karen Pryor certified trainer. She used to live in California before her husband retired a few years ago, and they moved to Arkansas. Cindy's riding background is in fox hunting, and for a number of years, she and her husband managed the kennels for their local hunt. So when Cindy starts to talk about dog training, I pay attention. She is speaking from years of experience working with large numbers of dogs, both the foxhounds and her household dogs. I also pay attention when she talks about horse training and horse care because Cindy always goes that extra mile to learn more about her horse's nutrition, foot care, training, and all the other health issues that interest her. Last week, we talked about feet, and we were about to jump into a discussion of Cushing's disease, so that's where we'll pick up for this week's conversation. Even if you don't have a horse with Cushing's, I'm tempted to add yet, it's become so common. It is still well worth listening to this podcast because chances are really good that you have a friend who does have a horse with Cushing's. Or as your horses head into their late teens and 20s, this is something that you'll want to be aware of. So we'll let Dominique start us off as she directs the conversation away from the foot care that we discussed last week and towards nutrition and other subjects. So it looks to me like we can't get enough of hoof care discussion. We were going to do a podcast on nutrition. nutrition, (laughs) So we should shift to nutrition. But in a sense, it's the same question because again, Cindy, when we were last together, the conversation was centered so much around Cushing's. And that's another huge area where that same driver of your horse owner, you've been given this diagnosis, your horse is becoming laminitic, it feels as though maybe the only thing that's the only option is to put your horse down. And then suddenly you discover that there's this incredible community out there that is an information-rich resource for people. And that, again, you're so good at helping people who are just beginning that journey of, I've got a horse with uh, Cushing's diagnosis and so on. And, And I thought it would definitely be something that would be worth exploring a little bit. So let's start with, we'll, we'll, We'll jump in a moment to what is Cushing's, but say I've got a horse who's getting up there in years. What are some of the early signs that might make me 
say to my vet when he comes for the spring or the fall vaccinations, I'm beginning to wonder if my horse might have Cushing's. What would be some of the those early signs? Well, for years, people, the quote hallmark symptom was horses that didn't shed well in the spring and horses that grew an exceptionally long um, coat and didn't shed it in the spring. But that's actually a symptom that of the more progressive, uh, the later stages of the, the condition. So early from what, what I'm seeing now and what has been the first sign indication to me with two horses now, mm. <laughs> lucky me, um, is fall laminitis. Mm. Which is much scarier than, oh, my horse has a long coat. And well, I mean, it's literally like, and when I say fall, mm-hmm. um, so we weren't going to get into it, but I'm just going to say um, horses, there is a, a hormone in their body called ACTH, and it controls uh, the release of cortisol in the body. And all we now know that all horses, that hormone increases in the late summer and actually in July uh, as the days begin to get shorter. And it helps, it's part of a whole process that helps the horse's body prepare for winter. And so, of course, if you're in, um, in the southern hemisphere, it would be um, in probably mm, February, January. Yeah, February, yeah. probably. So it it's still warm out. It's still sunny. You know, it's bright. And I first time I experienced it, I walked out and there was Burley standing in the middle of his paddock and unwilling to move and standing in the classic laminitis stance. I had never had a horse have laminitis ever and I had been I had how old was he 18 mm-hmm. and he yeah I just took one look and and I you know read a few things just it was start the the whole topic was starting to get more attention in sort of the popular equine magazines practical horseman equus horse and ride or horse illustrated they were starting to publish articles more about cushing's disease and which is the sort of the popular name for ppid is is the initials of the formal name of the condition and burley couldn't move and he just he didn't want to move and so i i went oh gosh and i knew enough then to know that you you you're really best confirming it with a blood test. And so we ran the blood work on him and sure enough. So what happens is in the, in the late summer, this hormone level increases in the horse's body and it stays elevated usually into November or December in horses that do not have this condition. In horses that develop this condition, it becomes, it's, it, it sometimes starts rising a little earlier. It rises much higher and it stays at an elevated level much longer. And if it reaches a certain level, it will, tr- it, it will trigger laminitis. And so very often if you're, if somebody's horse, and sometimes it, it, it's, 
it's with now they're starting to realize that with horses where it, they're not immobilized but they're mm -hmm. sore oh he's a little ouchy on the trails in august he doesn't want to go forward yeah he, you know out. he's being kind of a pig and he won't go forward and i really yeah. had to get after him to get him to canter and he wasn't that way three months ago Right. And it can kind of sneak up on you. They can, if, if you're in a position where you really monitor their water intake, they start drinking more, they start urinating more. Like if you, you know, my horses live out, so I don't have a way to monitor that um, for each individual horse, but they will drink more and they will urinate more. Was he, was he overweight a little bit? No. He wasn't. He was one of the fit ones. Well, so here's the thing with Cushing's disease. It can cause a horse to become metabolic as a secondary condition. So, you know, there are horses that are metabolic that have insulin resistance that just do. Um, there are certain breeds that are predisposed to that. Arabs, Morgans, Mustangs, ponies. Just think of any type of horse that is from a breed or a category of horse that developed in places that have very sparse vegetation. Donkeys and mules. Donkeys are, are by their nature basically insulin resistant because they developed in the desert with very limited forage available to them. So some horses have that as a standalone condition and those are the ones that you'll see in their, you know, no matter what you do, they're chubby. You, you starve them and they're still chubby, but then they're starving and then they're unhappy. But horses can also develop insulin resistance as a secondary condition because of the Cushing's disease. So it's confusing. You have to kind of tease it apart. It's like when we have a training problem, right? We have to kind of tease through and figure out what's really the issue. Is this horse just insulin resistant? Is he insulin resistant because he has Cushing's? or he can have Cushing's and not be insulin resistant. So Burley was not fat, he was not obese, and there he was. So we got him started on the medication, and at this point in time, there is one medication that is truly proven to be effective. It does not cure the disease. What it does is it fills in for the missing receptors that are no longer available in the, in the brain to process dopamine actually so that the body stops releasing cortisol so it it goes in and kind of fills in where there's a deficit so it controls it helps just chemic it's a bit like people with diabetes who have to take insulin right it fills in for that thing their body can't do correctly anymore it's not curable you basically manage your horse for life with the medication. As the horse gets older, often the disease progresses and they'll have to increase the dosage of the medication. But there are a number of people who have done absolutely heroic, heroic efforts with their horses and kept them alive and happy and still riding them after a diagnosis of this disease if they manage the horse carefully. They get the correct trim on the horse, they get the laminitis under control with the medication, and that's really the only thing that will get the laminitis under control. You've got to treat the underlying cause, and then they get a really tight, nutritionally balanced diet on the horse, and they can end up, you know, re recovering their horse and putting them back to work. So um, we didn't 
put Burley back to work because he was retired. He'd suffered a catastrophic injury that left him pasture sound, but not suitable for really any kind of ridden work and exercise. But he he had earned his retirement with us and we were determined that as long as we could keep him comfortable and happy that he had a home until it was clear he was not comfortable or happy anymore. And and he's we're what, 10 now? years out from that. He's 28 now I and he's say. still going strong. Yeah, that's right. He jumped, he jumped a fence the other uh, last spring. Yes. That he should not have been jumping. Yes. So, yeah, the old boy's still got some uh, spark in his eye and, and some spring in his step. So he's been on medication for 10 years. And last year, I noticed he was on his regular dose. And in August, I noticed he was looking not so good. He, he had lost some of his top-line condition. And that's another early sign you'll have a horse that maybe has always been a fairly easy keeper or, you know, just a reason, just stays at a nice weight. And all of a sudden you have trouble keeping weight on them. And it often is particularly noticeable again in August, September, because that's when that hormone rises naturally, but it becomes a more exaggerated rise in the horses that have Cushing's. And so Burley suddenly dropped weight and his coat went really dull and he just didn't look good and I thought oh no is this the end and I thought mm, let's test him and sure enough his medication wasn't keeping his ACTH enough under control so I increased his medication dosage and it took about a month but he started to look a lot better then I faded back his increase in January and then this year again I had to increase it in August but aren't there like stages where before they become Cushing's that there are stages before that where they would be insulin resistant, you know, for, for some time and then. No, it's, it's not necessarily, they can be, they can have insulin resistance and never develop Cushing's. Mm -hmm. They can have Cushing's and develop insulin resistance as well or they can just have Cushing's. Hmm. And so the only way to tease that apart is to do blood work. And then if they have- But would they founder a little bit, like when you say the fall laminitis, you would see that- Yeah. Coming for so, a while right. before they are well, actually Cushing's or- so, No, well, so no. Well, they act, they, if, they, if they're having that, and their test, their blood test proves it. They have Cushing's. But if you have a horse that is insulin resistant, and it is his nature, and I have, I have two horses like that, that they are insulin resistant. I have to watch their diet really carefully. They cannot be out on the summer, the spring grass. Right. Um, so spring laminitis, ding, 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 ding. You probably have a horse that is insulin resistant. And this is a generalization. There can be little, you know, different variations and exceptions, and we're learning new stuff all the time. But if your horse develops laminitis or comes up foot sore when he starts eating the spring grass, or if he gets a bunch of grain, then he's insulin resistant. And I've got two horses like that that have been insulin resistant for years. One of them, lucky me, developed uh Develop, finally developed Cushing's symptoms this fall. Mm -hmm. 
but the other one is still insulin resistant, no Cushing's. So it isn't, they are They're not one in the same. No proof that they are one in the same. They can, it's tricky because they can come tangled together or they, but if you have an insulin resistant horse, it is not a guarantee that your horse will develop Cushing's. Mm -hmm. At least we don't know that at this time. There's no scientific evidence to prove that yet. There's speculation about it, but there's nothing proven. And you can have a horse that has, that has been normal all his life. And then as he ages, he develops Cushing's. So it is confusing and there's, they've developed a new test that you can use earlier. There's a couple of ways that you can begin, you can start to test now and detect horses much earlier than they used to be able to, like before they're getting consistent, really high ACTH rises, they will be more sensitive to this other test called the TRH stimulation test. And that will tell you that sometimes people will label as pre-cushings. Mm -hmm. But often one of the first symptoms is if the horse is foot sore in the fall. Mm -hmm. So they may not be, you know, full blown. I mean, they have laminitis. They have inflammation of their lamina, which is mm -hmm. what it is. They may not have rotated. They may not have sunk, but mm -hmm. they're, they're tender. And they will often have thin soles. Yeah. But and the only way to diagnose is with the blood test. That's the only way to, I mean, you could, and sometimes if people go, oh, I see exactly what's going on and they can get the medication, you could put the horse on the medication. And if the horse is better, is starting to show improvement in a week, poof, there's a sign. Another early symptom that can come up is anhydrosis. The horse is unable to, to sweat Mm. and cool himself or it may be patchy it may be parts of his body will not sweat and parts of them will and my poor insulin resistant guy who showed signs of Cushing's this fall developed that yeah and you have to you have to what's the word in English to shave them to help them out because they're so you don't want them to get too warm in the summer because that's not good for them yeah well shaving them is one option um you know, you just have to do what you can to get them as cool as you can. So this year I had a fan, a big fan in mm. the shady part of uh, their their walk-in shelter. And he just, and it was right at the point where any day now it was going to cool down. So I didn't really want to have to shave him and okay. then have to blanket him. But he had like the one inch coat. Oh yeah. yeah, but all of them did. My horses said yeah. they all had that. We it stayed warm here um, later into the season than it often does, and he was miserable. I would go in and hose him down, and I would you know put cold water on him, and then he would stand in front of the fan. And it's not well understood yet. There's uh, some theories that are starting to develop, but there's no treatment recognized. But he once. He had, once his Cushing's was under control, once we got his ACTH down to a better level, once I got him on the medication and it had been in his system for a couple of weeks, that resolved. And he started sweating again. Okay. But, and what do you do in terms of, can he go to pasture or is he on a dry lot? Um, well, I don't have a way to completely dry lot any of my horses. So well, do you put muzzles on them? Um, the thing about... Well, here's the thing about it when horses are res are responding to the sugars in 
the grasses. It's not about how much they eat. It's about the amount of sugar in any mouthful they get. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So they can, you know, it's with the, like a human with type one diabetes, they can sit down and eat a huge plate of vegetables mm -hmm. and they're not going to get a big glycemic spike, but mm -hmm. they can eat five M&Ms and it can push them and it can push their insulin or their, their glucose way through the roof. So if you muzzle the horse, you basically have to close off the muzzle. And I'll be quite honest, I have not had a lot of success muzzling. I have muzzled him and Scout for their insulin resistance. Feels awful to the human, that's for sure. Well, <laughs> again, when I said earlier that, you know, anything Scout doesn't want to do, Scout doesn't do. Mm, she doesn't do muzzles? <laughs> uh, yeah, Scout, pretty much if I walk out, I mean, and I spent a significant amount of time desensitizing and counter-conditioning, <laughs> and Scout's like, you're not getting near me. You have, yeah, and, and it got to where it was like, if you had, if I had a halter or the muzzle in my hand, she was gone hmm. and and Reuben poor Reuben's a bit more of a, a gullible guy and he would let me do it to him but no they didn't enjoy it it wasn't much fun for them so so what do you do you pick the hours of the day where you yeah I try up? well again like I said I can't completely I do not have an absolute dry lot so hmm. they are in a small field that doesn't have much in it and they have mm. access to a round bale of hay that has been tested for low sugar starch and is wrapped in a one of those hay slow bags feeder hay net. Yeah. yeah it's not the super slow feeder because i don't need the super slow but it's in a it's in a slow feeder hay net and so they have to work and pick it out so let's talk a little bit about uh hay analysis because I just think that's that's an important it's an important area to explore a little bit. So you've mentioned a couple times that you have you know the well managed nutritional program is important for these horses with metabolic issues or with bad feet or whatever it is. So hay testing. You have your hay tested. I do. Right. And, you know, it's, it's probably, it's not a realistic proposal for everyone. Well, it's not complicated. Usually, you know, the general store where you get your feed will do it. Well, you need, well, what I like to have is a little bit more. That, so one thing about testing is not all testing is alike. Most testing is geared towards livestock producers. Mm -hmm. um, so, and Can we begin before we, before we get to that part of it. Yeah. Because if, if you've never tested your hay, it can sound like a mysterious process. Right. So can you describe the process of collecting, of, of, of physically how you go about doing a hay test? Sure. Uh, a horse hay test, because that's usually something you, you specify. There's, there's a... Um... A core, tool. a coring core. tool, yeah. and it's it's a long tube that's sharp on one end, and the best kind attaches to a power drill, and you just push that against the bale and turn on your power drill, and it spins this, and it pushes inside the hay bale, and it cuts, you know, uh, these little pieces about an inch long and it collects it collects into the tube and then you pull it back out and you dump what you collected into 
a bag and then you go to another bale and you do the same thing. And the tools run, I think, between like $150 and $300. But at least here in the United States, the county extension offices, which every county has an agricultural extension office, maybe, maybe not the boroughs of Manhattan, I don't know, but most counties will have an agricultural extension office that's affiliated with the state university. And you can go in there and they will have a hay core tube that you can check out and usually you don't have to pay for it. You just sign and you, it's like going to the library. You check it out, you take it, you go off and test your hay, collect your sample, take the tool back to the county extension office and then you've got this plastic usually a one gallon plastic bag full of all these little fragments of hay from various bales they usually recommend you collect it from 15 to 20 bales so that you get a, a selection and then that can be mailed off to um, you can take it usually back to your extension office but you need to find out what tests they will actually run on it because again it's usually geared towards testing for the things that matter to dairy farmers or beef cattle farmers and what matters to them usually is the protein and maybe some of the minerals, but mostly the protein level in the hay. And they and the protein and the digestible energy, which is basically the calories, because they want to put as much weight on their cows, if they're beef cows, as possible. And they want to put as much energy into their, their dairy cows as possible, because it takes a lot of calories for those girls to produce all that milk. And we don't want all this protein because it's too much for our horses. Right. And they're not worried about maintaining an 18-year-old cow. Right, yeah. right. And they're not worried about the sugar and starch levels. They're yeah. not worried about the... They might be worried about the calcium-phosphorus balance, but generally they will they will do soil samples of their fields and things and then and then treat their fields if, if they're getting low on calcium or whatever. So they don't really worry about that, but we worry about that because that's what our horses are gonna be eating. And particularly if they are on dry lot, it's really important to, to know those things because the forage, the hay, or the pasture, if they're out on pasture, that should be the bulk of the horse's diet. And so that's what they're getting everything from. And so, yeah, you know, and, and the other, there are a couple other things that are really important to know with horses, and one of those is the selenium level, because horses need selenium, but they need it in really tiny amounts, and if they get too much, it's literally poisonous and can kill them, and if they get not enough, it can cause huge problems that can make them very, very sick. So you need the selenium to be in this certain range, and if you go buy whether you buy, you know, just a, a, a ration balancer in the feed store or you buy a bag of pelleted, quote unquote, complete feed, most of them are going to have selenium added. It's important to know if you're adding enough or not enough because that particular nutrient is really important. The other thing that's really important is that you need certain, not just certain not just a certain amount of some of the minerals, but you need them in certain proportions to each other, or they don't, you don't get the full benefit of them. And so 
you can end up with, for instance, if they have, if there's a calcium phosphorus imbalance, if you have a, a we'll say if you, in California, a lot of times they'll feed a grain-based hay and grains are high in phosphorus and low in calcium. And so if you fed only oat hay, for instance, or you fed what they graze out there called forage mix, it's a combination of four grains, your horse is going to be short on calcium and he will literally start to rob his bones of calcium to try to supply the rest of his tissues with the calcium they need. So these things are, I mean, you know, that sounds really extreme. And for most horses, it's not likely going to be that big a deal. But the question becomes, do we want just adequate for our horses or do we want, you know, do we want to optimize their nutrition and not just, you know, and from a performance standpoint, for sure, we want to optimize their nutrition, right? If we're taking them out and we're jumping them or we're galloping them or we're riding endurance or we're going on really long trail rides and things, you know, we're putting wear and tear on their bones and on their soft tissues, on the um, very important synovial fluid that and, and cartilage that cushions the connections, you know, where the, the bones meet up and, you know, where when that fails, they end up with arthritis and a great deal of pain. So you know, we're putting our horses through a lot of physical effort like that and we're causing wear and tear on their body. They need the things to rebuild it. But even if we're, you know, like some of us not doing that much physically with our horses, we're doing some in-hand work or some light riding in the arena and we're doing short sessions. Even so, the hoof quality, the coat quality, all of that is impacted by having the correct amount of these minerals and correct ratios of the specific minerals in the diet. So one of the things that I found impressive and interesting when you were sharing when we were chatting about this on one of the visits and you were telling me about the person who analyzes the results of your hay analysis and how she designed for you the feeding program for each of your horses and at that time scout was in foal so her nutritional needs were very different and then once she had her foal the nutritional needs while she was lactating, also the nutritional needs of the growing foal, and that those were very different from your older horses, and that she was, uh, she didn't just give you sort of a generic, yep, your, your hay has got a reasonable sugar level, you'll be okay, see you next year, but she really helped you to design a feeding program that was individualized to each of your horses. Yes, she's amazing. And she is one of a number of people. They're involved with the Equine Cushings and Insulin Resistance Support Group. And it's it's a collection of people. It started as a Yahoo email discussion group. It's a collection of people that were looking for help and answers with horses with Cushings, insulin resistance, or both. And over time, it has become, they're doing citizen science. It's amazing. And Kathleen, who does, who helps me with my diet balancing, is based about four hours north of me in Kansas City. She's actually a PhD researcher, and she researches 
post uh, neonatal nutrition and the impact of nutrition on babies. And she has a you know, she's a typical deal. She was a horse owner and she had this horse and he had insulin resistance and he got laminitis and she went to find answers and got involved with this group. So she's developed a program and for $60, I send her the result of my hay test. I send her a summary of the animals in my herd, their age, breed, uh, size, estimated weight, and she comes up with a formula or a list of what I need to add to my hay for this group of horses. And and other than when Scout was in foal and lactating, it's really simple. And even then she made it incredibly simple for me. The things that I had to supplement in addition for Scout were, were really relatively mild. And she'll set it up so that and and if you'd like for the show notes i can send you a copy uh, i get a spreadsheet back with all this information and i can send you a copy of what i get from her and a copy of a hay test and you can put it in the show notes if you guys are interested so people can see what it is and what they get so she sends me instructions on if i want to call in to one of the companies that will do a custom blended supplement what i need to call in and I, and I usually just email, but I send off an email and say, I need, you know, I need my supplement and it needs to have this much copper and this much zinc and this much manganese and, you know, that much selenium or something. And poof, UPS brings a box with a 40 pound bag that's got, um, this stuff is in a ground, uh, stabilized base of flaxseed, which is great for the coat and the, the hooves and everything. They give me how much a thousand pound horse would get. And so then I go, oh, well, Scout's 1300 pounds. So she gets one and a third. And Sammy the donkey is half that. So he gets half a scoop and so on. And that gets sprinkled onto some dampened pellets or some dampened beet pulp and they all eat their stuff. So for $60, she get, if I get, am able to test my hay for the year, she sends me back instructions and she also provides instructions if I want to actually mix my own. She'll tell me where to get the ingredients, what's the most economical way to get those ingredients and how much I need to weigh out for a 30-day supply for the horses that we have. And then I put it all together, mix it in a jar and and sprinkle it onto their feed. So it probably sounds, it sounds more arduous than it is, but I feel confident knowing that I'm giving my horses basically the optimum nutrition that I can provide to them. I don't think it sounds arduous at all. I think it sounds immensely doable and practical. And it, it actually sounds easier than going to something like, oh, I don't know, one of those big trade shows where you walk past booth after booth after booth of people selling you supplements and telling you how amazing their supplements are and how in the world do you ever... I want to talk about that a little bit because there's so many people selling so many things out there. And I know for myself, I want to try to keep a critical mind. And, you know, I have 
I have adhered, is that a word in English? Yes. To clicker training because it is science-based. And I always think, you know, science is evolving and it may not be perfect, but it's still the best we have. You know, it's than throwing darts at the board. Yeah. So, right? um, you know, I'm always trying and, and it's hard sometimes to figure out what is really science based and what looks sciencey, but is actually just a great sales pitch. Yes. Um, and it's hard. It's hard sometimes to know how to know what's what. Well, I don't rely just on Kathleen. Uh, people can, and I, I have recently referred a friend of mine to her, and she was he contacted me back after she'd been in touch with her, and she said, "Oh, you know," she said her horses were sore, and I said, "Okay, you know," and her vet looked at him and said, "Yeah, I think he's, you know, I think he's he's." got laminitis maybe he's metabolic and they tested and sure enough his ACTH was really elevated and so they started him on medication and she says oh and I have to soak my hay and I said why do you have to soak your hay soaking is one way if you don't know what the sugar starch level is in your hay it's a way to to reduce the sugar and yeah, starch yeah. level in your hay but it's a headache and oh in a cold climate it's even worse as you can imagine and and I said wait a minute you told me the other day you bought your year's supply of hay. She said, yeah. I said, well, you need to test it. She said, well, I have it. I already did. I, I did the testing. It's in the bag. I haven't sent it off to the lab. I said, well, send it to the lab and then you won't have to soak your, if it comes back low sugar starch, you won't have to soak it. Like do that now. Don't call, don't spend your time complaining to me about soaking your hay, send it off. So she did. And she sent her test to Kathleen and she came back and said, oh my gosh, this is so easy. I can't believe it. it's going to be the simplest thing to feed my horses. So, but, but I didn't start again. I didn't just sort of go, oh, I'll trust these people. I took nutrition classes from Dr. Kellen, K-E-L-L-O-N, Eleanor Kellen. Um, she's a veterinarian and she's sort of one of the main veterinarians who advises this equine Cushing's and insulin resistance group. She over the years has done many articles for a lot of the popular magazines like Equus and Practical Horsemen. She's published a lot of books that are for horse owners. She's done books on first aid and some books on nutrition back in the 90s. And, you know, if you go searching around, you can find a lot. And she teaches online nutrition courses. And her website is drkellen.com. She, and I did her classes and, the, and it is based on so she teaches you about each nutrient. You know, she teaches you what you need to know about nutrition for horses. How much protein do they need? How much digestible energy do they need? How do you figure out how much your horse should get? And they actually teach you, you know, and all of the information is based on a publication called the, it's the NRC, which is the National Research Council, uh, publishes uh, a book that has information based on all of the research that's been done and makes recommendations about this is what the current research suggests horses need. So it's as science-based as you can get. And then she teaches you to go through and 
and take a hypothetical horse and a hypothetical hay test and sit down and literally do the math and calculate if I have a horse that weighs 1200 pounds and he's in maintenance, he's not, you know, getting regular work, then this is, you know, and this is theoretically how many, how much digestible energy he needs in a day to maintain a healthy body condition score. I, I want to talk about that for a sec. Because we usually say that horses will need one or 2% of their body weight. So I'm going to talk kilos here. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. That's fine. So That's for fine. a 500 kilo horse, uh, that would mean if I go to 2%, 10 kilos of hay per day. Right. 10 kilos of hay per day is barely like five flakes of two kilos. So, so just for, for those who are not metric, so 500 kilograms is uh, 1,102 pounds. Yeah. And 10 kilos would probably be like 20-something pounds of hay. Uh, 22. 22, yeah. And yet we say, you know, the best for horses is free-choice hay, but free-choice hay is much more than 10 kilos of hay per day. I don't I think that I think that free choice is the wrong selection of words. Uh, and I think you have to balance it. I think we you know we always have to so there's the ideal, but we always have to be practical. Cuz we know they love it. The horses they love to have that round bale and they will stay with it. But sometimes it's like, hmm. Well, that's is isn't that too much? It is too much. And and so here's I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of go swerving out. Some horses will self-regulate. So in Alex's when Alex was doing the discussions with Jane Myers from Equiculture, and she was talking about how she studied the grazing behavior of horses and how they will go out and graze for a while and then they will go back to a resting place, usually one that's probably in the shade when it's summer and in the sun when it's winter. And and that's true. But one thing that they have learned about the horses that have insulin resistance, the metabolic horses, is that they, their body, not only do their cells not respond properly to insulin, they do not respond properly to leptin. And leptin is a hormone. There are two hormones that tell the brain in mammals, go eat, and stop eating. And leptin tells the brain, it tells the body that it gets the feedback through the brain that the body is full and satiated. Mm -hmm. And ghrelin tells the body you're hungry. And they have learned that, so now as part of testing for the metabolic courses, they will recommend that you test their leptin levels. And there's some charts that will tell you if the leptin if the leptin test comes back at a certain level, it tells you that this horse is leptin resistant. They don't have an off switch. Mm -hmm. So they will eat and eat and I, I'm terrible, but I make this joke with my dog clients about Labradors. They say, oh, but he's always so hungry. We have to keep feeding him because he's so hungry. And I'm looking at this <laughs> poor dog that looks like a blimp and I'm, you know, and he's starting to get arthritic because he's so heavy. And I say, you need to understand you have a Labrador and most Labradors don't have an off switch. So if you break open, say a 20 kilo bag of dog food 
and you just let that dog eat that that labrador is going to eat until he pukes <laughs> and then he's going to eat his vomit and then he's going to vomit again and eat it again they don't have an off switch most of them and some of these horses are the same way they 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 their brain never gets the signal that they've had enough for now so you put a horse like that onto a round bale of hay and he's gonna he's gonna suddenly look dangerously fat in a few months because yeah. he doesn't have an off switch which is why there's been this explosion that and the fact that of course if they go for too long without forage in their in their system they'll develop ulcers but they can go up to four hours the, the joy of being the a horse owner is that you have to navigate between all of that exactly not between the free choice hay and not fasting for too long <laughs> right right and it's not so it doesn't have to be free choice and it doesn't have to be huge gobbing mouthfuls no but if right? you go if you close your barn let's say that i mean if you're in a boarding place probably they close at five if you have your own place you probably go for a night check at nine but and and then that's at least 10 if not more hours with nothing during the the night right that's a long time for the horses so there are those who have the round bales who will eat during the night and you feel you know they're good it's february it's very cold they're fine they have the round bales and then you but then you you when you look at the quantity you think oh my god we're way past two percent of the body weight exactly. and then you have the other horse who's going to be fasting between 9 p.m and 7 p 7 a.m the next day yeah you know, and I, you gotta I, find I, a happy middle ground somewhere in there well you know i don't know any place where they wake up at two in the morning to give the horses some hay so if you don't have the round bales unless you put like i don't know 25 hay nets they're not going to have hay for a long period of time during the night well, it so depends on how horses, challenging the hay nets right. are, too. I mean, my, my horses have hay all the time. There is always hay available to them. But one of the things that I think is really interesting in observing them in the setup is the hay nets are hung in the barn aisle and in the stalls. The stalls are not kept as we normally keep stalls. The doors are open. The horses can come and go. And the stalls are not bedded. Yeah. The... Horses have access to the indoor arena. That's where they sleep mm. because the indoor arena has the soft bedding. So mm. when they when they want to take a nap, they have to leave the hay mm -hmm. to go take a nap. When they want to go stand in the sunshine at this time of year, they have to leave the hay to go stand in the sunshine. So the I think one of the one of the places when I very the very first time I saw free choice hay i was horrified because the horses were they if they couldn't have been any fatter i mean they were so overweight and they had long they had long surpassed round like a barrel but they didn't have to go anywhere right. the everything was in this one spot the mm. hay the water the place to lie down was right. all concentrated in one 
spot. So they were always in front of the hay. It would mm. be a bit like, I don't know, um, if you had your your office desk your and your bed in the kitchen right next to the refrigerator, <laughs> you'd always yeah. be opening the door and snacking. And so I think one of the ways of being able to give horses that option of you've got hay, you've got access to hay. So at two o'clock in the morning, if you get a little peckish, there's hay available to you. But as we design better environments for our horses, and I absolutely, because I boarded for years, I absolutely get that we're not always in environments that can provide the ideal setup for our horses. But as we're learning more about horse care, horse management, horse happiness, we are becoming better at creating these environments that really suit both the emotional and metabolic needs of our horses. And I think that this creating, we'll call them zones within the habitat, that, that was that's part of the what the equicentral system that Jane Myers is describing. It's part of how, and, and I didn't set this up with this intent. It kind of evolved this way. But as I observe the horses, I really observe how well it works. And if I were going to do it all over again, I would very much take this idea of, well, that's where the food is and that's where the sleeping area is and their water's over here. And so you have that opportunity to step away from the hay net. So they move, but in terms of quantity, so when, when so you I, wake so, up in the morning, so, there's still hay in the nets, yep, right? Th- yep, there's still... And, and how, much, how much is and that? And I don't think that... I am feeding more than and I would be feeding. Ten kilos is really not a lot. So, well, it. I mean, it, it's not, it, a, lot. It, it, it's not I mean, a lot. I mean, my pico, ten kilos. He eats this and. So I mean, twenty-two. What did we say? Twenty-two pounds. Right. So to yeah, feed. That's nothing. So to feed three horses, that would be a seventy-pound hay bale, right? Roughly. Right. Well, our hay bales are roughly 70 pounds, and we go through roughly a bale a day for three horses. And it lasts them all night? We're feeding rough, I want to say roughly, because it changes a little bit from summer versus winter. But we go through roughly a bale a day. At this time of year, it's a little bit more because it's colder. But they also waste, they waste a, a, a fair amount of what we put out for them. So they pull it out of their hay nets and drop it on the floor and say, we're not interested in that. And that's fair enough. So the, the hay that we have this year, they're wasting a bit more of it than the hay we had last year. That's part of a, that's a function of, in part, how much water we had this summer in terms of the kind of hay that that grew but no I would say that so we're feeding roughly a bale a day that's roughly 70 pounds some of that gets thrown away because what they don't eat uh, over the cycle of a 24-hour period I take away I take out 
And so that's basically what they should be getting. So a couple well, comments. To Pico, he's getting 12 kilos a day, and at 7 p.m. he has nothing for the rest of the night. Is he getting them in slow feeder nets? Yeah, he is, of course, because he, he's a... I, I don't want to use bad words to talk about my Pico, but he really likes food. And you know, it feels to me like if I offered him twice that much, he would be really happy about it. Well, so a couple ideas. First of all, so Alex's horses, they get to move around the whole time. And I have a friend that set up, uh, and I, again, I'm boarding. I'm I know, boarding. I know. I'll yeah. just tell you. So she, her horse is very easy keepers. She put their hay at the bottom of this hill it she buys round bales and the hay goes into a slow feeder net i think she's using one and a quarter inch holes mm -hmm. and there's a roof over it so it doesn't get rained on and get messed up yeah. and then they have to go way up this big hill to get to their water and mm -hmm. the shade and the place that they like and the place they like to nap and and sleep and they so they go up and down and hike up and down quite a bit mm -hmm. obviously that's not an option for you but the other thing i will mention well they have a big 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 paddock outside so you know i we can we can have them move around some but right. um... so here's here's the other thing i want to mention is there is a webinar that was done for the international association of animal behavior consultants iaabc.org and it was done by a woman in Ohio named Tara Gifford and she used to work in zoos and they do a lot of enrichment and food stuff in the mm. zoos right where they hide it and and uh, they put it in you know hard harder to get places yeah, challenging mm. things and stuff so she did a whole webinar on enrichment for horses and okay. it's very affordable i i know it's less than fifty dollars i want to say it's like thirty dollars or something to to watch this webinar and it's about an hour mm -hmm. and it's just all kinds of ideas mm -hmm. of things and i've seen i know ken ramirez has put up pictures on instagram they stuff hay into these funny little balls and hang them for the goats and the donkeys so the, those are just some ideas of some things that you could, and, and the other thing I've found, I've heard people say, and again, I haven't tested this because my current setup doesn't really facilitate it and, and it isn't really necessary, is people will, they'll have multiple bags. So they'll like hang multiple bags, they'll make some of them more challenging, they'll like put one under a tire or, you know, put one down at the far end of the paddock and things so the horses aren't just standing there mm -hmm. sitting in their armchair next to the refrigerator <laughs> like Alex described yeah, yeah and and even I have used food dispensing dog toys I used to when my horses were in California and they were on dry lots and they would go through their food pretty quickly even when it was in doubled up hay nets I would get those I got the Kong wobbler and it's looks like a Kong, dog Kong, but it's mm -hmm. much bigger. And the bottom has is weighted and the top, you unscrew it and you put, you can put pellets, just okay. hay pellets inside and screw the top back on and they knock it around. And every now and then some pellets come out of the hole. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and I'm not saying, oh, gee, feed him his meals that way, but I'm just wondering if just sort of the playing with it 
is would give him some interesting things to do besides just go and and as I will say, once I started putting hay in slow feeder nets, and it's really interesting, there's times here where there will be hay out loose. And my guys like to go, I think they kind of like that, going and fiddling at the net and getting, picking around and going, oh, that's a little bit stiff. And oh, that one's leafy, I'll pull that one out. And they, they it's more kind of play to them. And even Scout, who I'm pretty sure has no off switch whatsoever, will go in and work at the hay net a little bit and then go out and stand in the sun with the others and go have a lie down in the certain part of the field that she likes to lie down in and go, you know, groom necks with Reuben. And she does not stay at that hay net, at that round bale nonstop. Because... They are social animals. So if the rest of the herd has moved away from the, the hay, that one horse that doesn't have the off switch, at some point he's going to move with the rest of the herd, which helps. Yeah. It's I mean, it may not helps. be enough, but it helps. And It helps. And and I'll be honest too, Dominique. I mean, okay, if, if Pico is an easy keeper, it may not be an option. But I also know people who have taken that restriction to an extreme and said oh my horse has to can only get this much and they're weighing it and and then they end up with other issues because their horse is getting through the food too fast and well i'll tell you i've i've tried in the past to do less than two percent and i'm never going to do that again good because i i think that less than 10 kilos for a horse is just for me, that's, you know, that's very pers- personal, but I'm, I know I never, because I had like, I tried, I had so many horses that were on so many different diets and I was very methodical about it. And, you know, I'm pretty good at following directions. If a vet tells me, you know, this is it. And, sure. But after trying it, and my vet knows this, I will never in my life again give less than 10, 10 kilos per day to a horse, unless it's a mini, of course, but I'm talking about, you know, a 500 kilo horse. So that means that I'm actually feeding 2% of the body weight. That's okay. So what I was taught in my nutrition class is that horses should get between 1.5 and 2%. And 1.5% of their body weight is really if you have an obese horse and you're needing to get him to lose weight. And the other thing to keep in mind... But horses on round bales, I'm pretty sure, are getting much more than 2%. So there's there's another tool that I've seen, I saw it in Germany, which is uh, an automatic hay feeder. It's the neatest thing. You put, you put the flakes into this, it looks sort of like this great big box, and it's on a timer, and... Wow. And it releases flake of hay. And then, wow, yeah, and it was so sitting... you could release at 2 a.m. Yep, on a timer. Yep, oh my god, and it was they uh, it was sitting in like this big run in shed, so it was in the middle of this wow, what was essentially a big covered stable sh- shed, and it dispensed hay on a schedule. Wow, yeah, I want to, I'm gonna Google that. So, another of course, another, so here's why it's great to test your hay, 
because 20 or 10 kilos of one hay is going to have a different yes. amount of calories yes. than 10 kilos of a different hay. Yes. That's one point. And then the other point is that the recommendation of something like 1.5% is for a horse that is not getting any exercise. And it doesn't, you know, exercise doesn't have to be a huge heavy trot. What I was taught for the insulin resistant horses is they need 30 minutes of concentrated movement exercise a day. It should be more than a walk if possible. And I tr I've been trying to do that with Scout and we're really mostly working at a walk. So I try to make it 45 minutes to an hour. And of course I'm clicking training, clicker training her. So she is getting handfuls of Timothy Hay pellets, but just doing that and going out and doing some in-hand work with her and things, she's looking better. So I don't feel as concerned about her when she's getting that, getting a little bit of exercise that is, you know, concentrated. It isn't just wandering around the paddock, but I'm taking her out and we're working on stuff. And so I'll pick activities like we're going to work together. We're going to walk down the long side of the arena going straight. And then on the short side of the arena, we're going to walk in three flip three and then we're going to straighten out and maybe we'll do some circles at each corner and get her flexing and moving in those and then we'll change the diagonal. so i i ride pat i walk patterns and things with her that keep us moving and i'll make duration a part of what i'm doing for you know a portion of the work session so that i'll say okay at this point i'm working on this so i'll click for just a couple of steps but now we're going to walk down the long side of the arena and we're going to step out and we're going to move out and we're going to walk and i'm not going to click till i get to the end all of that at least is is it does she look like a racehorse no is she ever going to no but at least I feel comfortable that I am helping her to burn some of the calories that she's consuming as part of her hay consumption. And yet she's not being, you know, shut off from her hay and given teeny tiny handfuls of hay. So anyway, that's just, those are just things that I've, I've sort of, try, I try to keep in mind the guidelines and I, but I also have to be realistic. And I feel like having really delved into learning this stuff, I feel more comfortable blurring around the ideal guidelines because I've got the knowledge. I'm not just guessing and I'm not just, right. so it's, I, I'm, I'm at least making an educated decision about the trade-offs. Yeah, you know, you know some of the boundaries that you want to stay in and you have a better sense of what you can manipulate and still be safe. And I do, ta I mean, I experiment, right? I go, well, what if I do this? What's going to happen? What if I do that? What's going to happen? You know, what if I put a grazing muzzle on Scout and then she gets to go out in the big field with the other horses? That worked one day, and then for five days, I couldn't get near her. So, <laughs> so she gave you her answer. There was my data. Yep. Go to people for opinions and horses for answers. There you, you go. But the it, it, you know, so it, it may be qualitative data, but it is right. data. And I asked a question, and I got my answers. So, 
Yeah. yeah. And I think you can experiment in a, in a re- responsible way. You know, when talking about Picot, because I discussed this with my vet, I said to her, do you, what do you think? Can I at least do a test with a round bell to see if he will regulate, self-regulate or not? And she said, yeah, you can do it for two weeks. I mean, he's, nothing's going to, you know, it's, it's going to be fine. He's not going to gain that much weight in two weeks. So I haven't done it yet, but, you know, it's, I think there are responsible ways to, to do experiments. And if I tend to involve my veterinarian, I have, I trust her a lot and I think, and we have great discussions together. So yeah. And, and as we always say, it's a study of one. And so we have to to ask the horse that um, we're concerned about. And we've and had the podcast with Michaela Hempen on the um, single study design and how you can do A B reversals. Mm-hmm. So when you ask the questions, you can you can say, well, let me experiment. Let me see what the effect is if I change the time of the day that I'm feeding the hay or the amount that I'm feeding, or if I put the hay in hay nets, and then, so here's my baseline. Now let me make my change. Let me observe the horse, collect data, weigh my horse, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Or even just judge his his demeanor, right? Yes. So if, if part of the concern about him being, you know, only having that much food in a day, it, I mean, obviously it's not weight, he's not, getting thin but you're concerned obviously about the risk of ulcers and and well, well actually he's very he's chubby you know i'm also concerned because if if i'm afraid he's going to just pig out and and gain weight and then we're going to to have other problems such as insulin resistance and, and but if that was your only if that was your only concern then you would drop his hay level down, but you don't want to drop his hay level down because you know that there are other bad effects from him not getting absolutely 10 I kilos mean, a day. You know how it is with a horse that doesn't concentrate on anything because he's so hungry? Yeah. You know, where it's, no, I love training, but right now I'm eating and I can't think. I've I've seen horses like this, you know, where they, they won't, it's all about food and they, it, it feels like they are so deprived. Um, that's not something I want for my horses. But at the same time, I don't, I don't want them to become, you know, uh, morbidly obese. Uh, they're older horses. I don't want them to develop joint problems because of the weight, etc. So it's, it's, a, it's a dance and we have to balance out all these different things. Well, I, and I will just toss in to say that I think so, I have seen horses that were very anxious about the food. And I don't know if it's that they're quote, so hungry, or if it, I, I find, cause I've worked with a couple horses like that. And I think sometimes when we start, especially with these horses that did not come as a clean slate, right? They have a life and a history. And for a lot of them, interacting with people in the beginning is, you know, they're the ones that if you go to their stall door, they turn away. They're not like, yay, here you come for me. So they'll take food, but they're anxious because they've got that. At what point in the session, are they going to get after me? You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I, I, and I see it sometimes with 
with dogs too. And, you know, dogs are episodic eaters. They're not grazers. So they'll get real anxious about the food. And I think in those cases, sometimes the anxiety, particularly if you know the animal's getting a reasonable ration of food, it's not some poor horse that's, you know, got a body condition score of two and literally has been has been starved but when you have uh i think that sometimes those horses that have had a difficult life they you know food becomes their comfort and and they get real focused on the food when they're around the person and then as they get more comfortable with, oh my gosh, you, you can convince them that you are a positive reinforcement trainer and that you're going to be doing things quietly and gently and reinforcing the behaviors you want. And you're not going to ask for too much too soon. And if they say, I can't do this right now, you're not going to insist. You're going to say, let's dial it back and do less. When they start to catch on to that, a lot of that sort of food hysteria begins to fade away. So I'm not saying it's not absolutely not the case that a horse is, you know, that the horse is faking it and he's starving. But I'm saying that, that I think if you have a horse that is relatively well nourished and you, you're showing a lot of anxiety about food or he's showing that kind of real obsession about the food, that taking time and sort of paying attention to that and saying what can how can I structure my training sessions to help minimize and alleviate that anxiety that overall anxiety about training sessions or about being worked with a person working with me in the arena that often the food anxiety decreases dramatically because that that was the case with our horse Reuben when I first he was he's my husband's horse and I was not supposed to clicker train him and when my husband said yeah you can go ahead and clicker train him he'd had a little bit of it and so he was real snatchy about the food and he was real anxious and tense and I just would take him in the arena and take him to a mat click and treat for being on the mat and I set it up, he, he had so many ways to be right. There were mats everywhere. And then I taught him head lowering and I would click and treat for head lowering. And after just, I don't know, it was a, probably about six or eight weeks of doing that, probably three times a week. One day I brought him in and he just, his, he just looked so calm and so settled which was not how he would start a session. He would end up the session that way until that time. But at the start of the session, he was tense, his head was high, his neck was high, he was snatchy about the food. And it's like he finally really bought into the fact that I was gonna do things differently and that I was gonna be slow and mellow and quiet. And it made a big difference with him and he stopped being snatchy about the food and he stopped being obsessive about um, in our training sessions. So. so food and training, I'd like for us to go in another direction. It's time for a break. We took a short intermission to go check on our various animals and then we started up again and continued on for another hour or so. When we picked up again, it was to explore a question that Dominique really wanted us to talk about. 
How do you manage multiple clicker trained horses who are all eager for your attention? In particular, she wanted strategies for getting through the pasture gate safely with one horse when all three want to turn. So that's the question we'll be exploring in next week's podcast. If you've been enjoying this conversation with Cindy, I'll remind you that I do two clinics at Cindy's Place in Arkansas. We have a spring clinic, April 24 through 27, 2020, and a fall clinic, October 23 through 26, 2020. You can go to my website, theclickercenter.com, to check out the details and get Cindy's contact information. I'm sure you can imagine from this podcast that Cindy is a wonderful host. She takes such great care of all of us, and the clinics are always jam-packed with great information. So do look at your own calendars, and I hope you can join us at one of these events. They are well worth it. While you're at my website, you can order your copy of the new revised edition of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures. And while you're waiting for next week's Equiosity podcast to be published, do check out my other podcast, Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate crisis. In the Horses for Future podcast, we explore how. You'll find the podcast at my sequestercarbon.com website. This week, my co-host, Amanda Scott, and I are joined by Michaela Hempen for an interesting discussion about habits and how to change them. It's a new twist on how you think about your own behavior change strategies. So go to sequestercarbon.com to find the Horses for Future podcast or subscribe to it through your favorite podcast provider. And until next week, have fun with your training.